You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Welcome to Black Hollywood Live's Justice is Served, where we bring you the latest in legal and entertainment news. I am your host, Rawa Gabra'ab, and I am joined by uh, the best co-host a girl could ask for, Lonnie Coons. <laughs> How are you to doing today, here. Lonnie? Great. <laughs> Happy Friday. Um, um, today we have a pretty pretty interesting show, as always. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be discussing the Central Park Five settlement, which made uh, major news this week with a very special guest. Um, we'll also... We also have several topics on the docket, including uh, the story of a felon mugshot that went viral on social media this week, uh, the ongoing legal woes of Columbus Short, and um, the story of a four-year-old detective who um, saved the day. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the, the news of the Central Park Five settlement. So uh, it appears a dark chapter in recent New York City history stands to close with the proposal for the city to pay a $40 million Uh, civil rights settlement to five black and Hispanic men who were wrongfully convicted in the horrific beating of a uh, white female jogger, 28-year-old white female jogger in Central Park uh, in 1989. Um, the victim, uh, who was found in a bush, more than 75% of, uh, her blood drained from her body and her skull smashed. Huge news, um, then and now. And, uh, she was in a coma for, se- for, for several days, suffered permanent damage, and remembers nothing about the attack. In 2002, a reexamination of the case found actually that, uh, DNA on the victim's sock pointed to, uh, Matias Reyes, who, uh, was a murderer and serial rapist, uh, who confessed that he alone attacked, uh, the jogger and, uh, the case polarized the city along racial lines and it became emblematic of a state of rampant crime. Uh, these five minority teenagers became known then as the Central Park Five. Uh, they were coerced um, amid public uproar into making these incriminating statements and convicted in 1990. Uh, a civil rights lawsuit was filed by the five men, accused, and they accused police and prosecutors of false arrest, malicious prosecution, and uh, racially motivated conspiracy. Now, the administration of of Mayor Michael Bloomberg fought the case, but his successor, uh, Bill de Blasio, actually pledged to settle the suit uh, before taking office. So this proposed agreement uh, between the city law department and the five men who served between seven and 13 years in prison, just just awful, averages about uh, $1 million per year. Uh, of incarceration. And um, one of the men served 13 years in prison. The rest th- served about seven. And um, the proposed settlement has has already been a- approved by the city comptroller and now has to be approved by a federal judge. And so we are so excited to have a special guest with us um, today, Charles F. Coleman, Jr., former Brooklyn prosecutor. And um, we're, we're really excited to have him join us today. Hi, Charles. How are you doing? Hey, Rava. Hey, Lonnie. Good evening. How are you? Uh, we are doing wonderfully. Why don't you uh, tell the people a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I am a former 
uh, Brooklyn, New York prosecutor. I worked in the Kings County DA's office for about six years uh, where I prosecuted uh, major felony cases. I worked in the gangs unit while I was there. I spent a lot of time there um, in the gangs unit where I dealt with some of the cities and some of Brooklyn's uh, most dangerous criminals and dealing with shootings and stabbings and all sorts of violent offenses. Um, and since that time, I have now transitioned to the federal sector where I am a senior trial attorney and work in the area of civil rights. Um, so I've been doing civil rights now for uh, going on. This will be my sort of sixth year in that in that uh, arena, mm-hmm. and that's where I've sort of transitioned my focus. Uh, so this case, from a civil rights perspective, has been incredibly interesting to me. Um, you you wrote a really fantastic uh, opinion piece uh, that was published this week in Ebony Magazine, um, and I and I read it online uh, about the settlement. And um, the, the the question, the overarching question is: Is forty million dollars enough? So tell us. Right. Is forty million enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I you know I started the piece, and um, the question that I had initially when I when I heard the dollar, even before hearing the dollar amount regarding the settlement, was, you know, how do you put a dollar sign or how do you put a, a, a price tag on those years of your life or or any any year of your life? And when uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but when the Central Park Five uh, were arrested, those individuals were, these brothers were between the ages of 13 and 16 They're years kids. of age. They were yeah. just kids. And if you think about what you're dealing with as a young person and some, some of the memories that you have during that time of life, I mean, you know, for most of us, those are very, very pleasant, very, very enjoyable times. Those Those young men were robbed of their adolescence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, everything from high school proms to just being able to just kind of come of age with your friends and, and experience life at such a critical time period, that was all snatched away from them, arguably, for no other reason than at the time it was easy to pander to racial fears and the threat of, you know, the the teenage or the young teenage black male in New York City, and they sort of became scapegoats for a lot of people's fears and insecurities where that became, uh, where that was concerned. And so... Um, you know, when I asked the question, or even before hearing the number, I thought about that. Now, I mean, you know, there's really no price tag that you can put on it, but certainly when you start thinking about $7 million uh, a piece, which is what it roughly breaks down to per individual, it certainly doesn't seem like enough. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what the actual price tag could be or would be, but given the time that was taken from them and, and the fact that these individuals were put literally through hell mm-hmm. uh, with respect to how the media just sort of dragged them through the mud and they became, you know, vilified uh, in New York media and in and, and national media, this was something that I don't think you can really quantify uh, in terms of, of, of a dollar amount. And certainly $7 million falls falls well short of that. You know, Charles, I think it's such an interesting question. This is Lonnie Coombs, and um, I'm so glad you're here to talk about this because you have such a, a, a good perspective on this. Um, and as you talk about it so eloquently, it's so important to remember that these men were kids when this happened. I mean, those formative years, not only did they miss right. out on what most people have, but it was replaced with having to become men in a prison setting. And, and you you know, right. none of us can quantify the, the impact that that has on them. And then when they got out, you know, being branded with this label. But um, I, you and I talked just briefly about this. And, you know, um, I'm a, also a former prosecutor. And you see now more and more people, men mostly, who are now being found to be not guilty 
and you know coming out of prison because of DNA, thank heavens, um, and, and these you know wrong convictions being overturned. And every time I hear one of these stories, my heart just goes out to them, and I think, how can we as a society make things right? And money seems right. to be you know the the least of what we can do, and yet like you pose the question, what type of number figure do you put on it? And while you conclude in your article that this doesn't seem to be enough money, which I agree, I don't know that you can ever give them enough money, it is actually, to me, though, at least setting a precedent that is higher than I've ever seen before, which I am happy to see and appreciative. Do you think that this ruling should set some type of precedent for these cases where, um, you know, people have been in prison wrongfully and when they get out, I mean, is that kind of, should it be a going rate sort of, you know, as, as crass as that sounds, right. for a million dollars per well, every year, you know, that you have to... You be- know, you know, Lonnie, the, the interesting thing about that is, you know, as I looked at the article, one of the things people fail to realize is even as the dollar amount may seem a bit low and a bit unjust as you start to break everything down, um, for one of the young men who spent the most time in jail, his settlement of roughly or his cut of the settlement of roughly $13 million will be the largest settlement yeah. that New York City has paid out with respect to a wrongful conviction case. Right. And so as related to cases before the Central Park Five, these brothers got a fairly decent settlement. Actually, they got a, a very decent settlement as it relates to other cases. I think you know, when you ask your question, there are a couple of other issues that you have to consider, uh, one of which is you talked, and, and this was sort of piggybacking on what I said about you know, how they had their adolescence kind of robbed from them mm-hmm. by, by virtue of this incident happen, happening. One of the things that is sort of an intangible that hopefully will come from this is that there has been a con- continued and concerted movement in New York State to ban the practice of automatically trying 16- and 17-year-olds as adults. Um, mm-hmm. These individuals were tried as adults. Mm-hmm. And in, in this case, that is something that even speaks to, particularly when you look at the ultimate outcome, Mm-hmm. That is something that speaks directly to us needing to have precautionary measures in place so that we do not incarcerate young people automatically yeah. as a matter of practice after trying them as adults when, in fact, these are juveniles and should right. not have ever been in a prison setting in the first place with grown men. I mean, New, mm-hmm. uh, New York and North Carolina are the only two states remaining that have not uh, you know, gone ahead and stopped the automatic practice of prosecuting young people uh, as adults. So, you know, that's one of the sort of unintended consequences. Hopefully that will be a result of looking at this. When Mm -hmm. you start talking about the actual dollar amounts and those figures, another thing you have to consider is, you know, you you use the word precedent, and you're you're absolutely right. Going forward, people will start looking at this case as sort of a benchmark as to where they should place the value of, you know, what – their situation is worth in the event that they are unfortunately wrongfully convicted. Um, and, and, it, and it will and it should serve somewhat as a benchmark. The caveat to that is that New York City, as, as in many cases, you know, is a municipality. And there's mm-hmm. only but so deep that their right. pockets that right. will go. And there's only but so much that they will be allowed to tap into. Good, right, wrong, bad, or indifferent, that's going to be the reality that we have to sort of reckon with. Mm-hmm. When you are faced with these situations, you know, you're going to have to realize like, that, hey, you know, you're not going to get a nine-figure settlement, even if the facts are incredibly egregious and the situation is just terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's, it's not fair. It's right. not fair. 
Um, and so, you know, when you look at the Central Park Five, one of the things that, you know, on one hand, the $40 million seems low, but then, again, on the other hand, it is in some cases, in some respects, uh, record-breaking. And so the, right. the other side to it, and, and this is kind of sort of the, the final issue on this piece, is that hopefully what it also does as an intangible, along with the stopping the, pro- the practice of automatically prosecuting juveniles as adults, is it makes law enforcement be more careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more mm-hmm. tools that are available. Um, part of the issue with respect to the civil rights case is that there was uh, there were allegations of intentional misconduct on behalf of both the police and the prosecution, and that's kind of sort of what got the ball rolling with respect mm-hmm. to the DA at the time reexamining the case. And so, hopefully, as a result of the fact that this that these payouts can be larger, the precedent that's established is that law enforcement is a little bit more careful with respect to double checking things, dotting their eyes and crossing their T's when they have you know, situations where DNA evidence and other technology can be used mm-hmm. to ensure that they've gotten the right person. Yeah, and I, and I think that is also an important part of these monetary awards, not only to try and make the victim whole in, an, in a little way, but also to, you know, remind law enforcement they need to be held accountable. Um, and I think you also point this out in your piece, which I thought was very interesting, that, you know, it, this media frenzy, all of this public scrutiny, sure. that was part of what got them wrongfully convicted in the first place, and yet it's also part of what brought, you know, this injustice to light and continue to push for some type of redress for these victims. Right. Uh, which brings me to my next question, and that's about the mayor situation. Um, we're not New Yorkers, we're, so we're kind of curious from the <laughs> other coast to hear about this, you know, that Mayor Bloomberg really for years just dug his heels in and refused to right. say, you know, accept any responsibility and really fought any type of settlement here. And yet the new mayor came into Blasio and said right off when he was campaigning, I'm, I'm going to fix this. Um, um, why do you think the difference in, in the mayors, and do you think that perhaps that was part of what helped the new mayor get elected? Uh, I, I think that first and foremost, there is a you can't have a conversation about the Central Park Five without being able to acknowledge the role that race played as part of their arrest, as part of their prosecution, and ultimately as part of their conviction. Mm-hmm. And I think that our, prior, our, our previous mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, was disillusioned and wanted to sort of resist that notion as much as he could. And quite frankly, on that issue was just simply out of touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, mayor Bloomberg was a mayor who was an excellent businessman. He came from the private sector and had a phenomenal record when it came to business and making money. And he had that approach when it came to managing the city. Mm-hmm. That does not always translate well when you're dealing with people and you're dealing with communities and you're dealing with issues related to diversity. And that's somewhere where he continued to struggle. His defense of the actions of law enforcement and police and the prosecution stemmed directly from his background of business. He was essentially doing nothing more than backing up his managers. And that's really what his background has trained him to do, and that's how he works. Mm-hmm. Bill de Blasio comes from an entirely different sort of background. And not to mention, I mean, you know, the man is married to a black woman and has, you know, children of mixed heritage. And so I, am firm, I firmly believe that he just has a different concept in terms of his understanding of the, the, the way that race played a part in this. So mm-hmm. I, I do believe that he was sincere. 
and discussing the fact that this was something that was wrong that needed to be corrected. Mm -hmm. And he was able, you know, and, and, and on a certain level, from a political standpoint, he does not lose any ground by coming forward and saying, hey, I want to make this right, because he mm -hmm. is not responsible for it being wrong in the first place. Right. So it's easier for him to step forward and say, hey, I want to fix this, because yeah. he also, in doing that, does not have to acknowledge that he's the one who made it wrong. That's kind of sort of right. the, the conundrum that, that Bloomberg found himself in yeah. uh, and, and a part of, and, and I think it, it made him resist it even further, that inability to say, hey, we really, really messed this up yeah. really badly, and so let's fix it. So I think that all of those factors are relevant when you start talking about uh, Mayor de Blasio and him stepping in yeah. uh, and, and being the person who wanted to right the wrong. And certainly, I, you know, I, I think his motives were genuine and sincere, mm -hmm. but let's, let's face it, he does not lose any political ground as far as most people are concerned yeah. with respect to trying to fix it. Yeah, and that's a very good point you make, and it leads me into to my last question here. Uh, many times in civil settlements like this, there's no apology made. There's no acceptance of responsibility. There's just money. You know, essentially, here's the money, right. you know, go away. Um, and I, when I read about this case and everything, I thought, you know, I wonder if, uh, you know, a governmental agency, this this mayor would have the the guts to just stand up and say, look, we're really sorry. And he has called it an injustice. And like you've pointed out, it would be easier for him to say this because it's really not, it was a mistake made before he got into office. So um, in a right. way that would make it easier. But, you know, in cases like this, it seems to me, when I was a prosecutor, one of the things that meant the most to victims who had been, you know, treated wrongly is to hear their attacker or whoever it was say they were sorry um sure. and, and i wonder what type of impact do you think that might have if you know someone the mayor would stand up in this case and just publicly say hey we are sorry say it to these men to you know face to face and and, and really accept that responsibility yeah some type of resolution some type of closure no i i definitely think that it would make a difference i mean you know a lot of times people are very reticent to admit the fact that they messed up mm -hmm. because it either reflects poorly upon them or upon the people that they put in place to do a certain job. And, and, and you know, they're very hesitant to, to go back and basically say, hey, I made, I made a mistake, and, I, you know, I made a mistake, and I'm sorry for it, and so on and so forth. I don't think that Bill de Blasio loses any ground by doing so. Mm -hmm. You know, from a precedent standpoint, as you've stated, I think that it's good form and good practice because ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, the belief is that more often than not, much, much more often than not, law enforcement is doing what they're supposed to do in mm -hmm. the way that they're supposed to be doing it. Yeah. So if you have a system uh, a municipality as large as New York City, and you ultimately end up with a very small percentage or a very small number of incidents where someone is wrongfully convicted, I think that is the right thing to do. I hope that this mayor uh, will set the example by being courageous enough to actually go forward and say, hey, we're sorry, mm -hmm. because as you've already said, to victims that does mean a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, the money I'm sure will help in some way to make them whole, but simply acknowledging, hey, you all were young people yep. who had done nothing wrong and ultimately became a part of something that was much bigger than you for no other reason than you happen to be in the wrong place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And that's what is the thing that, you know, I think an acknowledgement of that will go a long way 
with not only those young people, but also, quite frankly, the black community here in New York City. Mm-hmm. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful to have you with us. Great um, insights. Thank yeah, you. fantastic. Um, please share with us your social media information, your website. Sure, sure. No, I thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it, Robert. When you reached out, I was like thrilled um, because I was, you know, really looking forward to being on, being on the show. So this has been excellent. Um, if uh, listeners want to contact me, they can definitely find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle was at C.F. Coleman Jr. Um, again, that's at C.F. Coleman Jr. Also on Facebook, www.facebook.com backslash C.F. Coleman Jr. And if you're looking for me on the web, you can also find information about me as well as my nonprofit, Edge Movement New York City, at www.cfcolemanjr.com. So just think Charles F. Coleman Jr., www.cf Coleman Jr., pretty much for everything that's Twitter. That's Facebook, and uh, that's my personal website. So thank you guys for having me, and I would love to come back anytime you have me on. Yes, and if you're ever in L.A., you got to come in and join us in studio. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> and oh, absolutely. And everybody, please check out his article um, in Ebony Magazine, www.ebony.com. Um, and it's, it's a fantastic read and um, some pretty great insight. So thank you, Charles. Thanks so much, Charles. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it, and <laughs> I look forward to talking soon. Oh, okay. yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace. That was fantastic. It was. Uh, it's so helpful to. I mean, he was just such a great person to give the insight on mm-hmm. all of that. Absolutely. Um, and, and I remember that case. I'm old enough to remember when that happened, and it was it was you know a, a scary time. Just the way everybody got so caught up in it. Mm-hmm. And thank heavens for DNA. It's all I can say. Thank heavens. Thank heavens for DNA. It's really it's um, scary how many of these convictions are being overturned and yeah. how many. We're wrong. <laughs> and the people who do that work to check these things yeah. out and following up on the DNA, they're, you know, angels. So. They are. All right, we're moving on to On the Docket, and we have three cases today. The first one is, um, as Rava <laughs> titled it, The Hot Felon, um, Jeremy Meeks. As the world titled it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I have mixed feelings about this story. Okay, here we have Mr. Jeremy Meeks, and this is his mug shot. You might think it's a modeling shot, as many people, I guess, appeared to think so. Well, hello um, there. Where he was yeah. re- recently arrested, and the sheriff's department that arrests them, I guess, typically or sometimes posts some of their mug shots on Facebook. And when his hit uh, social media, it went crazy. And, you know, it's still going on. But at the latest count, he's had 89,000 likes. This picture has been shared more than 3,300 times and has garnered more than 10,400 comments. And it's probably even more. I mean, it's probably still going uh, because all of the different um, TV venues and stuff picked up on this because they started reading these comments. And I'm not going to read them because um, suffice it to say, they're talking about his looks, about his um, sexiness, about things that people would want to do with him. Um, And, you know, as a former prosecutor, I have a really hard time when people (laughs) are, you know, taking something that's very serious and turning it into something like that. And essentially that's the position that his family has been taking. Now, there's mixed reviews on, you know, um, his background. Mm -hmm. The sheriff's department said he's one of their most dangerous criminals. 
Um, then his whole record came out, and, and it, I wouldn't t term him as one of the most dangerous. I mean, he has a grand theft mm -hmm. um, conviction uh, person, which is like a step down from a robbery where he spent two years in prison. And then in 2005, he was walking out of a store, I guess, with a bag of pellets or something he didn't pay for. He was stopped. He got into a fight with a security guard, started re started resisting, um, you know, being detained and, and used some bad language. And then used his brother's ID, mm -hmm. tried to um, use his, you know, pretend he was his brother, but unfortunately his brother had a warrant out, I guess, allegedly. And so he got arrested for that, for, you know, giving false ID and resisting arrest. Um, and he has he has a couple of other things. And this arrest actually came about as a part of a sting that the local law enforcement was doing to try and cut down on um, some activities by their local gangs. And what the police is saying is that, you know, he's affiliated with this local gang, their local Crips, um, and that at the time that he was arrested, they were about to serve a search warrant on the home where he was. When he came out, he was arrested. And in his car, there was some ammunition. There was a small amount of marijuana. And then there was a, a gun in the trunk. Um, and so he is now being held on, there's mixed reviews. Some say a million dollars bail, some say 900,000, some say 600,000, but suffice it to say he's in jail, um, awaiting his trial um, that's supposed to come up soon and on several weapons charges. So we have um, his family who's saying, look, this is not fair. Um, the police are, are painting him in one way. People are looking at him as... Um, either they're not taking him seriously and they're wanting to make him into a sexual object, which his wife of four years really is offended by, and they have a three-year-old son together. Um, and his mother's speaking out and saying, look, he is a good boy. Um, he turned his life around seven years ago. He did have a past. Um, and now everybody's judging him based on his tattoos because mm -hmm. he's got the teardrop tattoo, which some people say, you know, that's if you have a hardship in your life, you get a tattoo, a teardrop. Others say if somebody close to you is killed, you get the tattoo outline, and then when you get revenge, you fill it fill in. Fill it in, yeah. Um, and then he also has a big Crips tattoo on his body. So, you know, there, there's this back and forth. And now, supposedly, there are some modeling agencies who are saying that they want to offer him a modeling contract when he gets out of jail. So... Rawa, I, you know, I have my opinion about how this, you know, um, is not so appropriate. Um, and perhaps I'm a little biased, um, having worked in the criminal justice system mm -hmm. for many years. What, how, how do you feel about how society is reacting to it? Do you think that looks always trumps everything? I mean, you know, we have women who were fawning over the Menendez brothers when they had done their egregious they crimes, did, did which is they? nothing close to yeah. this. This uh -huh. man has not done anything like what the Menendez brothers did. But it seems like our society is so focused on looks that, you know, will give a people a pass for anything that they might have done if, if they're good looking. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if they're going to give him a pass. I think uh, social media is just really on. It'll probably be on to the next big thing uh, shortly. But he has been a story for the past week. And yeah. I think that people just find him really fascinating because normally mugshots are probably the worst picture of you yeah. up that you could possibly have. I mean, maybe after a long night out. I mean, people look horrible in mugshots. Except, unless you're a celebrity. And you go in and you, True. some of our celebrity mugshots lately have been getting pretty yeah, fancy. Yeah, they have. <laughs> if you saw Portia Williams from Real Housewives of Atlanta, she went in with a full face of makeup, <laughs> hair done. Um, but, yeah, so I think that this was just really surprising and took people uh, by surprise. I didn't work as a I – mean, I was never a criminal attorney, so um, I don't necessarily have that bias. But as an attorney in 
general, generally speaking, I was a little bit disturbed. I was definitely disturbed by just people overlooking, oh, it's just a weapons charge. We could get past this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that some good may come out of it on his end um, in terms of money. From what I understand, a GoFundMe account was uh, was launched online and he's raised several thousand dollars. So uh, perhaps he will be able to pay his legal fees. Yes, his wife is incredibly upset. She's not pleased about it. And I wouldn't be either, frankly, mm-hmm. if my husband was blasted across as an object of affection, like across, you know, the country. Mm-hmm. But um, we'll definitely see. He actually has a hearing, court hearing this morning. So um, I think he'll probably continue to be in the news a, a little while longer, depending on, you know, how this hearing plays out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just, I didn't expect a story like this. I also didn't realize that uh, felons mugshots were on um, Facebook pages of sheriff's departments. That really threw me threw me off. And from what I understand, this is just you know, this goes by a department basis. I mean, not all mm-hmm. sheriff departments are are doing that. But right. when I went on St- the Stockton, California Police Department's Facebook page, I don't know if they just kind of cleaned up a lot of what was on there before. Now that they have all this increased scrutiny, but I didn't really see very many any other mugshots. No, I didn't see any other mugshots. I saw a couple of like wanted posters, but mm-hmm. um, no, I didn't. Maybe maybe they don't like all the attention, but yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I you know I appreciated what the the wife said, and she said, "Look, everybody else is having fun with this. It's a serious case for my husband, for my family, for she, and, and it is. And, and and on that side of it, I do hope that if." You know, if, if he does end up getting a, a job out of this, that that helps him be able to continue on the right path that he says he's right. on. Or if not, turn his life around and, you know, be able to um, provide for his family in a way that, you know, would work for all of them. So anyways, um, hopefully they can turn the situation into something good for, for themselves. Mm-hmm. But um, All right. So meanwhile, I think it is time to move on to another story for everybody. <laughs> Let's, I know I keep getting distracted. Jeremy Meeks go back to you know distracted by deal with photo. what he has to deal with because he's got some serious <laughs> charges ahead. Okay, another name that we have heard before, unfortunately, is back up again. Columbus Short um, from one of my favorite TV shows, Scandal, Mine and too. I was so upset when he started um, appearing in the in the news. And just for a brief recap, you know, he um, had some altercations with his wife. And um, once they started hitting the news, we found out that he had a record. And so he had a DUI arrest in 2008. Um, Then he had a battery with a GBI where he allegedly bashed a guy's teeth in on a basketball court in 2010. And he pled to a 415 misdemeanor and got probation. That's just um, essentially a 415 is a, you know, like public you know, a little incident. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in February of 2014, he was arrested for spousal abuse and child abuse because he allegedly punched his wife in front of his child. Um, He has a two-year-old and a 10-year-old, so both of them, Mm -hmm. two in the morning. Um, And then later he was arrested again uh, two weeks later for allegedly pushing his wife. So, and then there's kind of a back and forth whether the wife was going to cooperate with law enforcement or whether she was going to stay with him. And then apparently they did, she went ahead and filed for divorce. So that's kind of the last we heard of it. And then we heard that he left the show. Um, Well, now he's back again. Because now, yeah. not criminal court, but family court, which is where you go when there's a divorce, and he was supposed to show up and uh, did not show up, which is not a smart thing to do. Um, because he wasn't in family court, um, the judge made some orders with him not being there and ordered that he start paying $17,000, well, it's actually $17,005, don't forget the $5, <laughs> a month for spousal support to his uh, estranged Ooh. wife, and also 
$4,542 a month for child support, and he needs to pay $25,000 to cover his estranged wife's legal bills. That's a lot. Yeah, so he really got hit with a lot of money there. Um, and perhaps if he'd shown up in court, it might not have gone that way. He could have argued or contested some of these things. Um, Raul, what do you think is going on in his life? And uh, why is he not showing up to court? I mean, that's the bait. The first thing you do is, you know, that's you listen to the ask judge. You. <laughs> you, you know, the judge. Well, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I think a lot of people who have not been, this is what I've mm-hmm. seen, in the justice system, Nowadays, especially with you know all of this, whether it's a celebrity or just you know the self entitlement feeling, they don't understand that there is actually somebody out there who can control your life, mm-hmm. who can control your bank account, who can control where your kids are going to go, and that's called a judge. And so when you have to go to court, you need to take it seriously, and you don't just not show up mm-hmm. like he did. Uh, something's going on. Something's going on, I, and it, it, I don't know what, but um, and I don't know if I would say it's it's just entitlement, and of course I cannot be sure, but mm-hmm. um, there was video actually that surfaced earlier on TMZ, I think in February, uh, when he went back to his home with a female friend, which... I think is a really bad idea when you're in the midst of a divorce, a yeah. very a, a divorce that you know I guess the process has gotten physical, um, and the the woman that he brought for whatever reason, and his wife who was actually in the house got into a physical altercation, and he stood there and videotaped it with his cell phone. Didn't try to jump in, didn't try to stop it, and uh, some reports were saying something to the effect of, oh well, you know if he'd gotten in, then maybe he would have been you know further charged with some type of assault battery. Um, but I mean, it was just. It was so disturbing mm. to to watch, and um, and and shortly thereafter, or uh, maybe a little bit before. I mean, how the show ended, mm-hmm. um, this I guess the season finale for Scandal. I mean, he was getting ready to be shot. Yeah, and so we didn't know, like maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe he'll be there, yeah. maybe he won't. And um, I think, frankly, that network heads were just looking to see if. Okay, is this guy going to get in more trouble? And right. they thought, you know what? He is more trouble than he is worth to us right now. Shonda Rhimes does not play. Yeah. Um, the creator of Scandal and uh, various other shows on ABC. Well, everybody wants to be on that show. Right. I mean, you know, there's mm-hmm. people lined up behind him. And it, it's too bad because yeah. I do think that, you know, if he could have gotten it together and straightened out, mm-hmm. let, you know, let me get into anger management, let me, you know, take over my life and take responsibility. But it seems like it's just going the opposite direction. So, yeah, and I'm not in his pockets. I, I have no idea. But, you know, those network coins aren't flowing in uh, anymore, and that is a really high amount of, but, of money. Yeah, but the amount's probably based on what he was making, right? which he's probably not making anymore, so and, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, sure it'll be further. Yeah, I'm sure he'll go back in, or yeah. his attorney will go back in and, and try to fight it, so we'll yeah. see how that goes, but that's the lesson learned. Go to court. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. All right, last story for the day. This is a, a four-year-old named Abby Dean, and she is a young girl who... Um, Stood up and thank heavens she did. So she has a babysitter who's 17 years old. And this babysitter, um, this is in Washington, Wisconsin, um, had the brilliant idea of staging a home invasion robbery on the home of this four-year-old that she was supposed to be babysitting. Um, so she had her 16-year-old boyfriend and his friend come in and they stole the Xbox, the Wii, the iPod, Abby's kitty coin bank, which she was very unhappy about. Um, <laughs> she was un- yeah. Happy. And this all <laughs> happened the while um, the babysitter was babysitting Abby Dean. So the babysitter calls the police, pretends like, you know, she's right. a victim. And when the police come, she says, oh, well, I saw who they were. It was um, two black men. And one of them looks like the neighbor next door.
store. There happens to be a gentleman next door who's African-American. The police go over. They arrest him. They start interrogating him for hours until, thank heavens, little Abby looks and goes, uh, mm, no, the people who came and stole my kitty bank were white, not black. Thank heavens. And I will tell you this, as happy as I am about Abby, I am not so happy about the police. Yeah. Because children are great witnesses. You had two victims in that house. I'm putting my quotes around the babysitter. Um, you had the babysitter, but you had a four-year-old child. And law enforcement needs to remember that children can be great witnesses. One of my murder cases, I put on the three-year-old son and the five-year-old daughter to testify about their dad who killed their mother while they were in the house. And they were really good witnesses. So um, do not overlook the fact that young children Mm -hmm. see what's going on, and they'll tell you what they saw. And thank heaven she spoke up. And there was an interview with the neighbor who I thought was so generous and kind in saying, um, you know, the sad thing is I don't think the babysitter realized the seriousness of what she was saying when she pointed her finger at me um, because his life could have been changed. Mm-hmm. Ari has been changed. I'm sorry. That's an extremely traumatic thing to go through. And he has a child and a wife. And, um, you know, to be wrongly accused like that, thank heavens it didn't go any further than that. Um, but uh, my ire towards this babysitter is just through the roof. Rawa. I mean, I, I don't know who to be more happy about the, the little girl or more angry at the babysitter and really unhappy with law enforcement. Well, I think the, the slant on the story nationwide when it made news was, oh, God, this girl is so cute. I mean, I think we have video, actually. If we can go ahead and run the video of her. One, and she's something two, else. Three, four. Four-year-old Abby is wise beyond her years. Wednesday was the worst day in my life. On Wednesday, she helped the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office crack a case that would make the babysitter's club proud. They told us to get out of the house because they wanted to steal stuff. Investigators say Abby's 17-year-old babysitter orchestrated a false home invasion along with her 16-year-old boyfriend and another male suspect. I think about that was really that was really her being bad. She's not a good babysitter. Investigators say the babysitter made up a story about two armed black men breaking into the Ferndale home. The bad guys stole my kitty bank, and they stole my iPod. They also stole my Xbox and my Wii. The babysitter told investigators one of the suspects looked like the neighbor next door. Right over here by this tree, and Sniper is there. Neighbor Cody Oaks says police handcuffed him and questioned him for several hours because he fit the description. But little Abby knew better, and she told police. It wasn't the right skin color. Abby told investigators the suspects had white skin, not black, and that's when the babysitter's story started to crumble, and she confessed. Why did you involve the children? Abby's mom says she's proud of her young daughter. Literally in 30 seconds, she changed everything that had been going on for five, six hours. And her neighbor, Cody, says he hopes that babysitter and her accomplices learn a lesson from all of this. It's kind of sad because I just don't think she realizes, like, the dangerous position that it put me in. As for all the stolen belongings... They got it back because of me being a superhero. No word yet on whether Abby plans to go pro with her detective skills. But mostly, I would love to be a doctor. (laughs) You hear that? You were a bad babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) See how articulate she is. Impressive. It's really impressive. I mean, children can be great witnesses. Mm -hmm. And, And like I said earlier before we ran the video, it is... 
it's cute. It's a cute video, mm-hmm. and 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 she is the the center of the story. But um, it's it's so frustrating that there isn't more emphasis on how horrible yeah. uh, this accusation was, and it totally echoes Susan Smith, the case in the early I think it was early nineties, mm-hmm. uh, where a woman um, you know killed her her two young two young boys and accused a black man of carjacking mm-hmm. uh, her car and and killing the kids. So um, and of course it was found out later to be false, but I mean accusing a black man of a of, of a crime because the automatic assumption is okay. It probably was a black man. It it just it, it it's so frustrating and and, and it, it just reeks of just yeah historical well, um, improprieties. And this one's even worse because she actually yeah. pointed a specific man out. It wasn't just any black man. Exactly. <laughs> that I mean, one. Yeah. Go get him. He's right there. I mean, how vulnerable he was. Well, I live next door. What, what am I? You know. I mean, I, I, when I saw that thing, and I know everybody else is looking at how cute she was, as soon as I heard him, and I thought, oh, my goodness, he is being so nice, g- gracious in the face of this. And yet I Ooh. just want to, you know, I want to plaster that babysitter's picture up there and say, look. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it was um, far thank, more gracious. Yeah, for... far more gracious than I could ever be. Yeah. And um, and we'll, we'll, I don't know what's in store for this girl, but I really, I really hope that they take her to task. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that was that's our show. Um, yeah, we had a great guest. We had some pretty interesting stories on the docket. Uh, thank you guys for joining us this week. I hope you have a wonderful Friday. You can find me at Rawa, R-A-H-W-A, on Twitter. Lonnie? And I'm at Lonnie Coombs, L-O-N-I-C-O-O-M-B-S. Check us out on BlackHollywoodLive.com and on YouTube. And we will see you next week. Have a good one. Happy Friday. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.